Hey, buddy. <laughs> you doing okay? Yeah. Okay. Are we, uh, are we live? We're live. Yeah, I've got to uh, blind myself somehow. Blindfold myself. Somehow. Oh, you just close your eyes. Uh, that's just that's just uncinematic. This is a million little gods. I'm Aaron Gowan, and I'm Ben Fetters. Hold on, let me see what do I got here. So I'm now putting my uh, university tote bag over my. Oh yeah, well yeah. So that I can well, just in case I need to come get you, you know. No, yeah, Annalena should be home. So let's talk about this little experiment. Um, what was the idea behind it? I'll you presume. Like lock your car. I'll be at a uh, at a running pace. All right. I will know exactly where I'm going. So. Uh, my idea was we want to make a metaphor for understanding how we get from one point to another point. We have a goal in mind, but we don't have much data. And so we, we, we kind of make a map of what we think of as, as reality. And it's not a very detailed map. You look very funny. <laughs> Got a bag over your head. Yeah. It's doing you no favors. Just so you know. And then you have to kind of backtrack as it were and train yourself to make the map better as you're going along well i mean i'm trying to avoid the favors right that's the point of this entire exercise well what i mean is i was trying to compliment you hey thanks for links buddy oh 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 you mean because my head is covered i'm not like right, i'm not like john merrick <laughs> i'm not the elephant man is what you're trying to tell me god how do they do this in movies i can't breathe in this bag that I have a bag on my head. Has you know, seen? there was a motorcycle cop. Oh crap, really? In front of like, <laughs> and I sort of turned off away from uh, him. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he was like turned around looking in my direction. Oh, I was no. like, what is that guy staring at? And now <laughs> in retrospect, I realize he may have been staring at the passenger in my car with a bag on his head. <laughs> Which. I haven't talked my way out of a traffic stop in German before. That'd be difficult. I guess my metaphor guess was probably. just a metaphor for what reality is like. Exactly. I mean, Most of the time, we don't have a map beforehand. We make the map as we're going along, and you hope then that you can find some shortcuts. And as it happened, that's, mm. that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, I've got a map for you, and this map is... Looks like it's about 500 square kilometers. <laughs> Something like that. Uh -huh. yeah, In one that. way, the map that I gave you, okay. yeah, and we've just this very, you know, big picture, entire city of Hamburg map, is a, it's a model of the real world. Bombay. Yeah. You can see the house in Asta. But it's really, really broad. Yeah. But it's a very imprecise, very broad, very, very superficial kind of model. Okay, well, that I can, okay. Okay. Somewhere in Eimsbüttel. Okay. 
and you are trying to get to Eppendorf, mm -hmm. which is the next neighborhood, neighborhood yeah. and you're trying to get back to my place. This mm -hmm. is the address. Okay. <laughs> All right. Here's your map. Thank you. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta get out of my own car. Yep. All right. Here we go. She'll be waiting for you at your destination. Yeah, it's good. If you could figure out which way is north, you could get yourself pointed in more or less the right direction. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, the reason that you got back so quickly is, of course, that you had access to more detailed model. Hi. For example, you could ask passersby in German how to get to the place you were trying to get to, and um, the first people that you ran into told you essentially that was it, basically, yeah, everything yeah. you needed to know. I must mich auf dem Weg nach Eppendorf machen, und ich glaube, es ist in die Richtung, oder? Es ist ungefähr richtig. Ist die richtige Richtung. Okay, alles klar. But if you hadn't been able to speak German, or if there hadn't been some people wandering along to get you pointed in the right direction, the map that you had was basically useless. Oh! 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 Alles klar. Danke schön. Ben, this just worked. I asked the right people. The, the connection between this little stunt and the population genetics that we're looking at this week is what our eyes can tell us about a species or a person or whatever, right? That's like that map that's 500 square kilometers. I think I'm going in generally the right direction now. I seem to have found for myself a means of locking in on Eppendorf very easily. The Eppendorf Aveg. <laughs> okay. You you get a north and a south. Yeah. And you get some names of neighborhoods, but when you're down on the street level, it's really not going to help you. That's right, yeah. Um, and the difference, of course, with genetics is that when you get down to the gene level, there are no helpful passers-by to point you in the right direction. There are no street signs. You're lost in an unfamiliar city with a map that really isn't fit for purpose. There's just no way to orient yourself when you're dealing with that kind of granular data. And certainly the model that you brought with you, this, this phenotypic model, that's not going to be any help at all. You might as well throw it away. It's the Austin Einstein, but that's all far away from me. Here in Amsterdam, there's just not a single bit of... I mean, there's a park right there. When I get to this park, I'll have a feeling like I'm getting closer to Eppendorf. We have an intuition that the language we speak, as it were, I speak English, I hear somebody speaking German, maybe I don't speak any German. I look for some cognates, that is to say words that have the same form. I might be misleading, sometimes there are false friends I hear, 
little clues in the language that sound the same. The kind of classic one in German is, is something like become means to get in English, basically. And I try to, to parse that out. I might get completely misled by a language that has some vague similarity. But I still have some clues that are guiding me along. I kind of feel a little bit like I cheated by asking that lady. I couldn't really have known that she would know right away where that street was. Wow. And if I'm smart, you know, if I'm clever, then I can build on those clues, take some other clues, find analogies between those two clues. And through error and hopefully even some clever bits of associative thinking between my errors and my, my ideas, I can make some shortcuts and eventually come up with my own way of rebuilding that map. Isn't that sort of the other lesson? You bring your goal with you. The map doesn't tell you where you're going. Yeah. Hi. Are you here already? I'm here already. Wow. I know. I'll, come, I'll be right down. Okay. The thing that tells you where you want to arrive is you. You bring that into the exercise with you. I gave you the target of where you're going and, and the goal of you know, having the map and and asking people where you're going is to narrow down all of the wrong answers so that you can get to the right answer. And I realized, wait a minute, I'm going to go to a larger street than, than this street. So I yeah. just found the next large street, and that was the, uh, the uh, Eppendorfer Weg. That's true. The map isn't going to give you that. The map isn't going to tell you what's right and what's wrong. That's some outside goal that you're bringing into the exercise. Absolutely. But you followed it go. in the correct direction. Well, I mean, I had a general sense just from like where we had been driving. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, also I watched uh, uh, you drive away. And so. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Uh, the other level of discontent is when these shared thoughts become reified. That is to say that you you get a kind of perverse sense that your your way of parsing the data determined by your own goals really make the way you parse the data seem like it it's completely objective it doesn't have the same faults as as we mm. we subjective individuals i don't generally like to make philosophical arguments from etymology mm. but in this case i think it's worth it's worth thinking about two different meanings of objective there's objective in the sense of not subject to personal interpretation and then there's objective in the sense of goal, right? It's your it's your objective, it's your target, it's it's what you want to achieve. And to me, I think those two ideas are linked. Something can only be objective if there is some kind of goal already set up. If I'm hungry, objectively, it's better to eat a sandwich than to eat cyanide. But if I want to kill myself, probably better to eat the cyanide. And I have to, I have to come in and I have to set the goal first. Before there can be an definitive answer to the question of what should I eat. Hmm. 
You'd um, have to eat a lot of sandwich otherwise. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's the faster and the slower form of suicide. Yeah. Uh, suicide by meatball sub. Just the idea of when you think of something as objective, it's useful to take a second and think, does it seem to be objective because actually I've specified a goal and we're talking about what's going to get me closer to that goal, which could be, you know, something that everyone would agree on. You know, a suicidal person and a non-suicidal person would both agree that if you're hungry, it's better to eat a sandwich than cyanide, right? There'd be no dispute about that. What they're disagreeing about is what their own goals are. I don't know that it's always the case when we're talking about objectivity, that we're talking about having a goal, something you want to accomplish. But I think it's often the case, and I think it's more often the case than people recognize. Hmm. No matter what you have to say about the logic of a person, their motives are their motives one way or the other. You, you could be mistaken if you only focus on the motives of a person and you don't point out their faults of reasoning. But it's not as if people don't have motives. They always have motives. Mm. Anybody who's claiming to make some kind of objective accounting of anything mm. needs to be ready to account for their own motivation. And if they're not willing to talk about that, then they're probably either indefensible or, you know... Yeah, pathological in some way. Imagine yourself standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon. Even if you've never been, you know what it looks like. Red rocky prominences surrounded by crumpled blankets of eroded sediment, stretching out past beyond the horizon. The Colorado River did all this. But the funny thing is, although the river's course is clear enough right now, as you trace your eyes up the canyon walls, it becomes less and less clear where the river ran. The river itself was never as wide as the canyon itself is now. But countless layers of schist and limestone the river has cut through are clearly visible. And it seems like, with one glance, 
you can see the entire history of the Earth. See it, maybe, but not comprehend. When we talk about genetics, and especially population genetics, we need to retain the sense of overwhelming deep time. Because the complexity in our genes vastly exceeds the complexity in the Grand Canyon. We might overlook this because the physical chemistry of our heredity is so unbelievably small scale that we find it hard to grasp the magnitude of it. And the language often in science communication has a tendency to simplify. X's and Y's, dominant and recessive, gene, chromosome. These simplifications do a very good job of displaying the elegance, but a very poor job of conveying the messiness. So even though we're talking about categories, and especially the category of race, when we look at our genes, we need to try and abandon these human ideas and try to understand the geological view of biology. There are strata that are there to be read, records of shifts and transformations and catastrophes. But not with the seductive linearity of the Colorado River, not with the goal of producing the Grand Canyon or Australia, and certainly not with the goal of creating national borders. The Berlin Wall was not thrust out of the ground by a natural catastrophe. It was put there intentionally. And it was torn down intentionally. But if we want to understand the truth of biological history, it's this idea of intention and clean division that we have to leave behind. We're in this period where we can actually look at people's DNA at a, a level that was just totally impossible before. We talked to Carl Zimmer, author of a truly remarkable book on genetics called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. You can look at thousands of genomes from people from all over the world and measure genetic diversity with a kind of precision that just didn't exist before. 
And so you can then look at those results and then you can go back and look at, you know, these traditional concepts of race. And if you want, you can kind of struggle to sort of say, well, does this contradict race or does it support it or whatever? But I, I think that it's a very difficult thing to do because it's never really clear what people actually meant by race back then, and it's hard to know what people mean by race when they're talking about it now. I can tell you about the sort of the things that people are learning about genetic diversity now and about human ancestry now, but then it just becomes a matter of trying to compare that and what scientists are learning right now to whatever notion that somebody had in 1920 or 1950 or 1970. Or the, or the 19th century, for that matter, yeah. yeah. Right, right, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, people have been getting more and more genetic information about humans and, and their variation for a long time. Blood type was probably the first genetic diversity that people could measure because, you know, if you're type A, that means that you have, you know, there's a gene that you have a certain variant of it. And if you're type B, you have a different variant of it. You have type O, you have another variant of it. Uh, and that was all discovered uh, over 100 years ago. When people started looking at blood type, they said, oh, okay, so who has blood type? Where do you find different blood types in the world? And and they kind of assumed that they would match up neatly with with races or something like that. And it didn't really. It just it, it doesn't. But mm -hmm. and, and which was confusing. <laughs> um, but you know, people sort of went on sort of assuming that there was some sort of real sort of genetic distinctiveness between quote unquote the races. And when they would find something that seemed to really jump out, then they'd say, aha, this is, this is evidence that, that the races are genetically distinct. So sickle cell anemia, for example, was first identified in Africans and African-Americans, people in the Caribbean. And so that became sort of considered a quote-unquote black disease, even though later it turned out people who live around the Mediterranean get it too. But that didn't really enter into it at first. And so... So once people would find things that seem to correlate with these existing ideas of races, then they would say, aha, like, so we can then assume that there are all sorts of other things under the hood that also line up with these racial differences. And that would support these existing racist ideas. that started to fall apart very much in the 1970s just because there was so much genetic variation that could be found across the races and since then what's happened and what people like Leroy are doing or they're trying to like rescue some concepts that were kind of buried in the notion of race mm -hmm. uh, and you know there has been a lot of debate about that I think a lot of this is um, people kind of talking past each other Hmm. You can actually figure out people's ancestry fairly accurately by looking at their DNA, but that doesn't mean that those differences that you can use to determine people's ancestry have any particularly deep meaning the way that people who talk about race think it does.
Well, when we say that we can know somebody's ancestry, that means that we know, we know, well, what, what, do, what do we know? Um, what are these categories that we're putting people into? What are these clusters that we can find in data? Um, that has to be a thing. Is it a subspecies categorization of humans? Uh, that would imply races, if that's what we mean. But I don't think that's what we mean. So what is it that we know when we say we know somebody's ancestry? Yeah, we're, we're, we're people have kind of historically lived in a kind of distinctly enough way that, that it is possible to get a rough idea of where our answers came from. And that just has to do with, you know, how, where people are living and how they're living, who they're marrying and things like that. Mm. Um, but that's a long, long way from saying that people in, you know, India are of a separate race than people in China. When people use the term race and say like, oh, it's, it's, we're talking about something like subspecies, well, the clearest example of that kind of a race is, is a subspecies is just an interbreed with other subspecies that, is, that stays genetically uh, distinct. Um, and that just doesn't happen in, with humans. It's not like you can go to some place on the border between India and China and you can draw a line and say, ah, you see, nobody on this side of the line ever has kids with the people on that side of the line. Mm. Humans just don't respect lines. They're moving all over the place all the time. But there's enough inertia in the system that, you know, over many generations, certain genetic variants end up becoming more common in some places and not others. Most of the time, that's due to complete luck, complete chance. It's just genetic drift. Mm, yeah. There are other cases where certain genetic variants get to be more common in, in one place as opposed to another for good survival reasons. But that's not, that's not anything you could use to talk about race. So what we're talking about now are these kind of classical examples of phenotypic traits that we all think of as advantageous in some way, hair shape, uh, eye shape, uh, skin color, the amount of melanin that's in your skin that would be perhaps advantageous in different climate conditions. And so it would be differently distributed around different geographical locations, right? You know, there, there, are some, there are some good ideas about why people have skin color the way they do. And it does seem there are some clues that natural selection is involved, but it's complicated. So, for example, um, you know, now people can dig up skeletons of, of people who lived thousands of years ago and get DNA out of them. And you can actually infer from that DNA what color their skin was because they have these genetic variants that are known to to you know determine skin color. So what's kind of odd is that you know several thousand years ago in Europe, you know, in Spain and Germany and places like that, people were very dark. Mm. They they were not white. You know, we're not quote unquote white. They were not even beige. They were they were dark. They were brown skinned. Uh, and that's kind of surprising because people just assume that humans came out of Africa. Some of them went to Europe and 
because they needed more vitamin D or something, they be, they became quote unquote white. They did eventually, you know, become lighter skinned, but it took a long time. I mean, humans showed up in Europe maybe forty thousand years ago or more, mm. and and again, you know, even a few thousand years ago, a lot of them still had dark brown skin, mm. but. But to make things weirder, a lot of them had blue eyes, you know, which we think of as being something unique to white people or something like that. Europeans, as we think of them today, did not exist 10,000 years ago or even maybe 7,000 years ago. If you look at sort of the genetic composition of Europe, of Europeans, with the range of genetic variation that you can find in Europe, and then if you go back and you, you know, dig up skeletons of people from like 7,000 years ago, they look pretty much nothing like Europeans today. They're, they're like as different from Europeans today as like someone living in Siberia or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because there were big movements of people from other regions, from southern Russia, from Turkey, with their own you know, genetic combinations, came in and everything got combined in different ways. And that sort of created the combinations of genetic variants that you can use now to recognize people from Europe. There's lots of new, you know, lots of new research that that keeps driving this home and, and replicating the results over and over again. You know, I think it's very exciting um, hmm. because this is stuff that we didn't know even like a couple of years ago. Um, this is this stuff is 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 it's quite constantly new. changing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say constantly changing. I'd say constantly coming into focus. But none of what I was just talking about has really anything to do with some old-fashioned notion of racism. None of that is justification for sort of the, you know, the ideology of racism or the injustices of racism. The, the thing is that skin color is one of the, the most... Uh, beloved of kind of racial uh, (laughs) categorizers. And it just, you know, if you really look at it closely, it just kind of all falls apart. If you look at, you know, humans and Neanderthals and you say like, well, are they different species or not? I keep asking scientists who study Neanderthal DNA to give me a straight answer on that. And they <laughs> never, they are never willing to because we are clearly genetically distinct and yet we clearly interbred and we had fertile offspring. So, you know, 
that's in a kind of a gray zone where you're close enough that it's very hard to say where one species starts and one leaves off. We have this legacy from Linnaeus and people who wanted to classify that just were sure that there were, you know, very sharp boundaries that you could draw. But, you know, Darwin pointed out, look, we have a really hard time drawing these boundaries. And we keep thinking it's because we just haven't found them yet. And Darwin said, no, the fact is, there's a reason that species lines are so hard to draw, because everything's evolving. You need to think of speciation as a process, not just some sort of like, you know, uh, transformation sort of, from one to another. Yeah, yeah. Things don't just leap into a completely distinct species. That's just not how evolution works. Mm. That music you hear is a sign that it's time for us to reverse the polarity of the enrichment flow from enlightening to pecuniary. What I'm trying to say is we're asking you for some money. But we're offering you something in return, and I don't just mean the show. If you love the show and can't get enough of the interviews, then boy do I have something to offer to you. Head on over to patreon.com slash a million little gods where, for a small donation, you can get extended versions of the interviews, and, for a bit more, the entire first season which is now behind a paywall. You can help us keep the lights on and get a little something extra for the effort. Thanks. Enrichment flow polarity reversing back. So what is the science telling us? Look, God, this does get technical. To find out more, we talked to Rasmus Winter, a philosopher of science at UC Santa Cruz, who also holds three master's degrees, including one in ecology and evolutionary biology. He's also author of the new book, When Maps Become the World. We wanted to get a little better idea of how these population genetic models actually work and what they do and don't tell us about race. If you were to be directly asked the question, is race a thing? And you were forced by the Spanish Inquisition or something to, to answer, that, answer that question with a yes or no, you couldn't do it, could you? Because I couldn't. No. I, like, I couldn't answer that question. And Correct. tell me why, yeah. why not. These are difficult and challenging matters. Um, it's just that race has multiple meanings. I, I see no way to say that there's a single unequivocal universal meaning of race or of the concept race, period. We need to distinguish, and many people have distinguished, between biological race or groupings versus the social race or groupings. The way that we treat people, the way that we have power structures, the way that oppression may or may not happen and happens differently in different countries and different parts of history, that there you can talk about a kind of social meaning of race.
contrast that with like the excitement and the apprehension with the population genetic work, which kind of builds a little bit to some extent on the physical anthropology work, but it's that's like our next step towards what is the biological structure of human, of Homo sapiens. What is very interesting is that Noah Rosenberg, Pritchard, and a few other collaborators developed a modeling software. So let's say you have a hundred individuals and you have a bunch of their genetic data. Meaning you've looked at the genome sequence at many places of these individuals. And you know where one has an A or a T, and another one might have a C and a T. And then they built this modeling software, it's called Structure, where you can take those hundred individuals and sort them into groups. Now, there's various assumptions, such as what is called Hardy-Weinberg assumptions, and you tell the model you want to create groups that meet best you can these Hardy-Weinberg assumptions. And you tell the model already, like, hey, I want to have two groups. Or you run it again and you say, I want to have three groups. And then if you say, hey, I want to have three groups, then it takes those hundred people and sorts them into the best three groups it can, given this model following certain assumptions from population genetics. So these um, computer models, like structure, they you they have algorithms where you've put in various assumptions of a population genetic model, and then you find the best groups given a bunch of individuals where you know their genetic information. So it's again, let's say you have a hundred individuals, and you tell your structure program, give me three groups. Maybe I should have said four. <laughs> uh, you know, we don't want a third of an individual. Let's say four <laughs> groups. And then you want to end up with 25 in one, 25 in the other. Da, 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 da. And what structure does is it, it makes the group such that you actually have a nice, even distribution of alleles in each of those groups. This works fine under the model. I mean, these are fine assumptions to use. 
but then whether they map neatly onto actual human populations that have been under selection if they have the mathematical clusters that structure gives you is then an open question about how they relate to the natural populations of humans. So earlier we separated the categories into biological and social race, whereas in your publications you've actually delineated three categories, social race, biological race, and biogenomic race. Could we break those down. I think we've actually clarified the difference between biological and social race, but the idea of biogenomic race as opposed to biological race is maybe unclear to the listeners. Yes. Uh, I think that cat I think a category like that has to be considered when thinking about the new genetics and the new the new genomic information models that have been emerging the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And 23andMe has obviously been taking off the last couple years five years or so. But um, the point is that whatever population structure the genetics might tell us and that we might wish perhaps to divide the human species into various genetic clusters or populations, that's not the same as the kind of race concept that was based on phenotypic characters, certainly physical appearance is what I think some hereditarians might say. But then, you know, even things like disease proclivities that might differ across different so-called biological races. And what um, John Kaplan and I, when we worked on this together, um, you know, we have three papers together, very fruitful collaboration, I think, uh, we were interested in the difference between the genetic level and almost, I want to say, the phenotypic level, because uh, how you divide up people according to genetics might differ from how you divide them up according to biological phenotype. Now, why does any of this matter? This matter, all of this matters, like all the genomic stuff, in a sense, really only matters because there are powerful social and political and ideological discussions afoot about whether biological race exists or not. Whether genes, whether we can divide humans up according to genomics or not, I mean, that's all fine. It's almost a theoretical exercise. But it stops being a theoretical exercise when there's a mapping between differences in the biogenomic um, distributions to differences in the phenotypic uh, clustering or groups of humans. And here in phenotype, we include cognitive characters potentially related to IQ, but which then is potentially related to social success and social um, standing, etc. And of course, to things like oppression and systematic um, discrimination, racism, if you like. Um, that's where it matters.
So John and I thought it was really important to distinguish between this sort of, one could almost argue, more theoretical genomic exercise of, well, what are, are there any clusters at the genetic level? And then the next question is, if there are, how do those map on to the phenotypic clusters that we typically, in the discussion, take biological race to be more about? Can I, can I add a question to this? Uh, is there a sort of feedback loop happening uh, in which you, you're motivated in the first instance to ask, is there any valid biological concept of race versus a purely social concept? Because the social concept has aspirations uh, to ground itself in the biological speciously. And, and you're now adding this third concept exactly because the social concept has been uh, fallaciously grounded in the biological and because of a sort of social political valence, it's become so necessary to fight against this grounding of the social and the biological that now you have to double back and say, okay, but leave us some room in the interest of science and in the interest of just how knowledge works to find out if through genomic means we can conceive of some coherent clusters in the human population without that being in any way married to to pernicious social concepts of race. Yes, I think I think that's about right, but I don't think I don't think necessarily John and I mean it in a normative sense. It's a claim about scientific method. It's also a claim about scientific communication. When it comes out to the public, it might help. I know it's a little harder, but instead of always having a sort of nature culture divide or nature nurture divide between biological race and social race, tell people, look, there actually are at least two questions in the biological matter. And now we take the bedrock to be genetics. But whatever lessons we may learn about the genetic clustering of humans, it's not clear what the relation is to that, to the biological traits you think matter, like cognitive traits, IQ, if we even think IQ exists, etc. And so back to your question, yes, we made that distinction because we want to have a space for, well, you said it very well. There's, we want a kind of a space for the genetic modeling and theory, which doesn't necessarily have the negative sense of normative. Don't call it race. John, I think, would insist, just don't call it race. But there are like these biogenomic clusters. What these structure models, these population genetics models, do is take the messy, jagged geology of the human genome and put it into neater categories that are useful for certain types of questions. But just because it's useful for certain types of questions doesn't mean it's useful or even accurate to help us answer every question we could possibly ask. Imagine we took a similar approach to geography. Imagine we measured every possible parameter of every mountain in the United States, from elevation to mineral composition to the flora and fauna in the ecosystem. 
we put all those trillions of bytes of data into a statistical model and then said, take all these mountains and give me two categories. Most likely the model would give you, in very rough terms, the Appalachians and the Rockies. But if you took that conclusion and proclaimed that the Sierra Nevadas must be made out of the same rocks or really are somehow the same as the Colorado Rockies, or maybe you'd say that the Adirondacks were formed at the same time as the Blue Ridge Mountains, you'd simply be wrong. And it's not that the mathematical model was wrong. You were using it to ask a silly question in the first place. As the old saying goes, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. As Carl Zimmer detailed in his book, if you ask the structure models to take, for example, all the genetic data and build five groups out of it, what you get is a model that very roughly can place every person on the continent their ancestors occupied, more or less. But if you ask it to make six groups instead of five, it gives you those five previous groups plus one tiny, fairly isolated group of people in the mountains of Pakistan. But if you were to travel to meet those people, they would hardly strike you as being so distinct from the rest of the human population that you need to invent an entirely new genetic subcontinent to place them on. These genetic models tell us interesting facts about the world. But the most important thing that they're telling us is our old categories are stubbornly persistent fictions. The, these statistical methods, yeah, that it's up to you to yeah. to set how many numbers you want to find. So you are, in a, in a sense, determining the answer you're looking for. And you know, it may be that the individuals you're trying to put into a group don't fit very well, statistically speaking, into say just two groups. Indigenous Americans, where do you decide that they become a race? Okay, if you go back. About 15,000 years, they are hanging out in Siberia. So I guess they're Asians. Now, when they, when, they, when they walk across the land bridge, do they then immediately, you know, get their passport stamped Native American? Do they immediately become a separate race? Well, they're, or, well you could say, oh, well, they're isolated from everybody else in Siberia. That's true, but there are lots of there were lots of groups of people who were very isolated from other groups, uh, we, even within Asia, uh, for long periods of time. So just saying, oh, they're isolated doesn't matter. Where do you where do you start? To, where where does this natural kind called race begin? Yeah, I, I don't know, and I and I've never heard um, any kind of explanation of that from from these quote unquote race realists. Yeah, they're not they're not realistic at all. The population geneticist David Reich 
has been deeply involved in the research that, for example, brought to light our unsuspectedly close kinship with Neanderthals. Here he is discussing his findings in a presentation on edge.org. One of the things that's emerged from the genomic ancient DNA revolution from this new science of the human past is um, the realization that human populations today are mixed. Um, this is a very unexpected thing and was not really in people's way of thinking about the world before. But when people think intuitively about human population differences, the way people think about it is they think, oh, there are these differences that I recognize intuitively amongst groups that I see in the world. And they must reflect group differences that go back deep in time to the time that we all share a common ancestral population. But in fact, that's not true. So if you look, for example, 10,000 years ago at the population structure of Eurasia, and uh, you compare it to the population structure of Eurasia today, the group, at that time, the populations were just as differentiated from each other as they are today. But the structure was nothing like what it is today. So for example, today, West Eurasia, Europe, the Near East, uh, Central Asia, Iran is a region of very low differentiation. The populations genetically are quite similar to each other. But in fact, that reflects over the last 10,000 years a dramatic collapse of four very different populations into each other. Hunter-gatherers of Europe, ancient Near Easterners, both in the west of the Near East and the east of the Near East, and people from the steppe. Um, these populations, none of them disappeared, but they all mixed in with each other such that it's a large region of low differentiation. There's these people who are uh, ancient North Eurasians uh, who used to be spread over Siberia. They don't exist anymore. They don't exist in unmixed form, but they exist. They've left huge numbers of descendants in India and Europe and the Americas. So there were groups that were highly differentiated at that time, but they're very different from the groups today. And what you would see instead is a lattice of groups in the past, which are quite differentiated from each other, but a form of mixtures of other quite differentiated groups going back and back and back and back in time. It's mixture all the way down. It's very different picture. I think that's difficult to reconcile with people's intuitive sense of the differences amongst groups, which are more of these pictures of static difference going back a long way. Reich published an excerpt of his book in the New York Times a few years ago, and the way some of his findings were framed, and the way he broached certain subjects drew such harsh public criticism that when we approached other institutions and researchers to talk about our subject, we were politely but firmly rebuffed. There was little interest, it seemed, in discussing such an apparently radioactive subject. We talked to Carl Zimmer about why he thought this was the case. Um, well, I, I, I don't think it's any surprise that talking about these things is going to be controversial. It would be hard for me to imagine it not being controversial if you just look at the history of the concept of race and at the history of the study of human genetics. I mean, mm. the the idea that we could have any sort of peaceful, soft-spoken discussion of these things is I think is is naive. Pollyanna-ish, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and 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 you know, part of it is that um, part of it is that it's not you know, scientists are not the only ones who get to talk. Uh, you know, a Native American scholar gets to speak up and say, you know, all these ways that you're talking about genetics and cultural identity don't have any meaning to the lives that we lead. 
and the way we uh, identify ourselves as belonging to tribes and other groups. That's just going to, I mean, scientists are just going to have to, in the 21st century, are just going to have to accept that it's going to be noisy and it's going to be messy. Now, if that means that they're going to have some sort of you know, departmental policy that they're going to be completely silent, well, that's pathetic. Uh, I mean, it's pathetic okay. because they are getting lots of taxpayer money to do very expensive research. This stuff is not cheap. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's incumbent on, upon them to talk about this, the value of this research. And it can be purely scientific value. It could be potentially social value. But if you're just going to say like, well, we don't want to, there are things about this work that we don't want to talk about at all. That's abandoning part of the work of being a scientist. Mm. Part of being a scientist is, is having a role in these public discussions. As a final question, tell me some aspect of hereditary and genomics research that you think is just truly revolutionary. So, uh, you know, the the thing is that uh, people like to pretend that races are incredibly distinct things by sort of imagining that there's some sort of purity between different populations. And the fact is that mm, essentialism. Yeah. yeah okay. And the yeah. and and the, and the fact is, I mean, you can look at look at DNA. You can see that no, that I mean, these boundaries are quite porous. But then, like, we're actually very hybrid in a much bigger sense. So if you step back you can see that humans had a lot of sex with Neanderthals, hmm. with other kinds of humans called Denisovans, and probably even other kinds of more distantly related humans. So our ancestors were mixing together genes in lots of different combinations, and we still use a lot of those genes. Some of those genes from Neanderthals turn out to be you know, very useful for fighting diseases, or um, maybe for closing up wounds quickly, things like that. Um, and so if you look at it from that perspective, you know, that we, we, were, we separated from Neanderthals 600,000 years ago, and then between maybe 100,000 and 40,000 years ago, we were having a fair amount of sex with them. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, like, it's it's kind of absurd to try to, like, you know, pretend that there's some sort of simple purity to being human. Being human. The categories we've built to put humans into have no more relevance to our genes than the name San Andreas has to the tectonic fault line that has been grinding and shuddering for 30 million years, long before humans would even think up the name California. I take the argument on this point to be conclusive. But it also makes me think of another way to look at this. The geological view can just as easily be turned around and applied to the social phenomena that we're studying. There is a geology to human ideas. Continental plates shift and collide and throw up mountain ranges of ideologies and taxonomies that can appear on a 
human scale to be eternal. But understood properly, we know that these mountains are eroded away by the rivers of time and the winds of change and will eventually be washed away to the sea. A Million Little Gods is produced at the University of Hamburg. Editing, writing, sound engineering, and production are by Ben Federson and Aaron Gowan. Music this week was provided by Seneca. The new album Entanglement is available to stream everywhere. Today's episode also featured music by Chad Crouch and Poddington Bear. Our theme music is by Nick McDonald and Recycled, spelled like psychology. And they also have a new album out, so make sure to check them out. And make sure to check us out on all of the typical social media platforms. Our website is amillionlittlegods.com. On Instagram, we're amlg underscore podcast. Our Twitter feed is at amlg podcast. And we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash amillionlittlegods. Tune in next time for episode 12, Tortoises, Hairs, Words, and Genes. This is A Million Little Gods. And we'll see you when we see you. I haven't had a goddamn meatball sub in so long. And I just, I hadn't even thought of that as a, as a thing in a long time. But my God, just putting like marinara sauce and meatballs on bread and nothing else except, okay, cheese. Cheese melted on top of it is just the most American thing you can think of. And, ah. <sighs>